Hey, everybody. It is Thursday, November 10th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts from verified sources and a breakdown of what matters in the news. We read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, it has been a remarkable 36 hours coming off of these midterms. I saw you were out covering some of the races on Tuesday night. How was that? Well, I love an election night, uh, so I could not resist when some of my old work colleagues asked me to help them out with coverage here on Long Island. I will say it's nice to use those skills again, and there is something really nice about being out in the field. Yeah, I was uh, trying to monitor it all uh, from my uh, Brooklyn, the Mo News Brooklyn headquarters. Um, <laughs> HQ. I was trying to, I was trying to also uh, pull up Newsday TV, which is what you're reporting for. Um, yes. But um, we'll talk more about uh, some of the things that we both observed from election night, and so far what we can glean. Okay, so here's what we're working on today: a midterm status update. Russia retreats from a key region in Ukraine. Facebook laying off thousands of workers, some cool technology that could make drunk driving a thing of the past, and Jennifer Aniston opens up about her struggles with fertility. All right, let's start with the midterms. The big takeaway, Republicans fell short of the red tsunami or red wave expected ahead of Election Day. And I apologize for once again just using that worn out metaphor. Pick your favorite water metaphor. <laughs> That's really what it is. It's it's crazy. Let's start in the House, though. It was expected to be a bloodbath. It appears that Republicans likely won back the House. But as you mentioned on yesterday's podcast, they did not do that in a commanding fashion. So which are the races that you're watching. So the larger theme, you know, to to speak to more of the um, aqua metaphors, Jill. So there was the red wave, the red tsunami that some were expecting. Then some said, well, it was more of a red ripple. Some are calling it a pink puddle. Um, so there's a lot of... Ew, I don't like that. No. That's- <laughs> okay, fine. So we will not use that term. But needless to say, um, before we get into some of the specific races, the larger theme is that historically speaking, based on where the economy was, based on where Biden's approval was, the expectation was that Republicans should have no issue taking potentially a couple dozen seats um, in the House from Democrats. As of this recording on Wednesday afternoon, 24 hours since polls have closed, there is still a chance Democrats could hold the majority of the House, which is a pretty remarkable thing. Right now, it still appears Republicans will have a very slim majority. We're waiting on about 25, 30 seats, Jill, mainly in California, Oregon, Nevada. Ne- sorry, I was going to say Nevada. It's Nevada. I was corrected on my Instagram feed today. Um, oh, I. so you know I used to do all these hits for the local stations around the country from first when I was the Money Watch reporter for CBS. Uh-huh. And I did, if I was doing stuff for KLAS, which is the CBS station in Vegas, and day one, I I must have said Nevada, and they were like, no, it's Nevada. <laughs> they get triggered. So I, I learned it the hard way. <laughs> they get triggered. They get triggered. I actually included a clip. There's a clip from Veep when she had a recount on uh, the show of her continue, insisting on calling it Nevada, despite it all. Anyway, needless to say, we're waiting on about 25 or 30 seats that could dictate what's going on. If I just check the New York Times uh, election alerts right now, as of this recording, uh, the Republicans have 206 seats. The Democrats have 182. You need 218 seats for the majority. So doing simple math, Republicans are about 12 seats away. Democrats are about 30 seats away. So Republicans need to win about a third of the seats that are still pending. Democrats need two thirds of those seats. Either way, even if uh, Republicans are able to take a majority, they will have uh, underperformed 
historical precedent. Since Harry Truman was president, the president's party that is in power in their first midterms loses an average of 26 seats. Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, and Barack Obama, three of the last four presidents, lost between 40 and 60 seats in the House. And so it's a pretty remarkable turn of events. Uh, Jill, I was just watching President Biden gave his first press conference uh, since the election results on Wednesday afternoon. He was asked a whole load of questions. We can talk about a few of them. But one thing that caught my attention, he was asked by one reporter, what in the next two years do you intend to do differently to change people's minds about the direction of the country. Keep in mind, exit polls last night showed that three out of four Americans don't like the direction of the country. Biden's answer to that reporter, nothing. I'm going to change nothing. Uh, In fact, people just need to see all the great things I'm doing, and then they'll see the light, uh, if you will. And what was really interesting too, Jill, is he was in the same breath talking about unifying the country, but then also saying he's going to try like the devil to ban assault weapons. He was accusing uh, Republicans of trying to block Social Security, uh, you know, cut Medicare, etc. So it seems like he, from his vantage point, sees, you know, historically good result for his party, even though it was not a stamp of approval from the American people in any sense of the term. And so he's struggling between wanting to unify, not wanting to change anything, and clearly edging to run again, by the way, as well. That's my big takeaway is that it feels like we're definitely going to be seeing a Biden-Trump rematch. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you could. there was nothing in his tone today that showed uh, that he is, um, at least if he is, he's not showing it. Uh, considering not running. Uh, He was asked about another exit poll last night that uh, found that two-thirds of Americans don't want him to run again. Two-thirds of Americans in exit polls say that they don't think you should run for re-election. What is your message to them, and how does that factor into your final decision about whether or not to run for re-election? It doesn't. What's your message to them? To those two-thirds of Americans? Watch me. (laughs) Someone's feeling themselves. I mean, it's it's just uh, we'll see what actually happens, though. Totally. In the meantime, though, we do have two more years of Washington. Uh, There's a couple things to watch here. I still think if you look at the numbers, Republicans look like they'll take a slight edge. Again, they need 218 seats to control the House. They might be at 219, which would be pretty remarkable. It'll make governing pretty difficult for them. Keep in mind, Nancy Pelosi for the last two years has had a five or six seat majority, which means a handful of uh, people in your caucus can dictate a lot. In Pelosi's case, it was AOC and her whole wing, the progressive wing, that AOC, that Nancy Pelosi had to answer to. In the case of Kevin McCarthy, who would be the incoming Speaker of the House on the Republican side, he'll have to answer to the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gateses of the world if he has a very slim majority. That's why Republican leaders were sort of hoping for a much bigger result, so they don't have to deal with a few of these um, outcasts with some extreme positions. But when you have a very slim majority, you got to keep everyone in line. Two other quick takeaways, Jill. Uh, You know, Republicans were running heavily on inflation economy, inflation economy. Uh, Biden is terrible. Uh, One thing that a lot of people brought up was, what is your solution? And they didn't really bring solutions to the table. They were just hammering the president, which they thought would be enough. Democrats were getting ridiculed, including uh, by pundits, by journalists, for not talking about the economy, for really drilling down on abortion and on democracy, on Republicans being a threat to democracy. Well, it turns out that those two messages were effective in churning out the Democratic base in many states, uh, save New York. We'll talk about New York in a second. But for the most part, Democrats were responsive to that theme. When you look at exit polls, uh, the majority of Americans' top issue, 
uh, inflation economy. But just behind that was abortion, Jill, which speaks to the messaging Democrats had. So that's very interesting. And the final theme, and it gets to kind of the stuff you were covering, uh, if the Dems lose the House by this slim majority, it won't because they lost too many seats in uh, Texas or Ohio or Michigan or Pennsylvania, where they actually picked up some. They lost potentially four four seats in New York State in a very blue state. And so if Democrats don't have control of the U.S. House, if uh, Nancy Pelosi is no longer speaker, it might be because of what happened in New York. And you were covering some of that. Right. So I was at the Republican headquarters in Nassau County here on Long Island and Republicans had a huge night. So they basically won all four of the congressional seats on the island. In Nassau specifically, they flipped two seats that have been in Democratic control for literally decades. And Nassau County, both of the districts, District 3 and 4, very, uh, excuse me, very favored for Democrats. The candidates were running on those issues that you just mentioned, the economy and crime. They were specifically hitting Democrats on bail reform it seemed to do the trick, even though bail reform is really a policy that comes from the state level, not so much the federal level. But they just tapped into this concern that Long Islanders have about that increased crime we're seeing in New York City trickling into the suburbs. Nassau County borders New York City. Um, and you know what? I think that part of the the abortion equation here is that Republicans in New York anyway could kind of allay fears about women's rights because most New Yorkers feel pretty confident that abortion rights are protected in the state. Um, it's codified so, into the Constitution in New York State. Exactly. So so there wasn't this concern. It wasn't really, I think, weighing on on women and and just the electorate in general. It's it's fascinating because we try to in the and you'll often hear this in the media like broad stroke themes like why did people vote the way they did but races are local and so it's very interesting that candidate quality matters who the candidate is matters i mean we're seeing a case in colorado we're watching the results there where lauren bobart who's part of this kind of marjorie taylor green wing of the republican party might lose her seat in uh, rural colorado she's a congresswoman known to carry around a gun with her as part of her shtick and so, but many people in her district found that she was much more interested in media appearances and not legislating. And so she might go down. So we saw these themes. And so when you look at even the House, the say the House, um, there was a strategic redistricting in Florida, which led to a few Republican pickups down there. Um, the New York redistricting by the Democrats actually completely failed and was thrown out by a judge. And then, of course, you have this crime issue. So you have these kind of micro uh, things popping up around the country, which then lead to the end result. So it's it's hard to often paint the country with broad strokes, given how diverse the country is. You know, we we also love reading into things and coming up with some sort of thesis for the night. Yeah. But the truth is, the the races that I was talking about, District Three and District Four in, Na in Nassau County. Both of those, the Democratic incumbents, decided not to run for re-election. It could have just been as simple as that, right? If an incumbent had been there, perhaps it would have swayed the vote and one of those districts would have gone back to the Democratic hands. You know, So we're trying to read, read all of it, read the tea leaves, come up with trends. But as you say, so much of it's local, so much of it is about the candidates, uh, but we do want to try to make sense of it. Okay, I want to now get to the Senate, which is still a bit too close to call. So Democrats need 50 seats to keep control of the Senate because 
Vice President Kamala Harris has a tie-breaking vote. So that gives the Democrats only need 50. Republicans would need 51 to regain control. As of this recording, Democrats have 48 seats. Republicans have 49, likely 50, three races still way too close to call, Arizona and Nevada, which are still counting votes, and in Georgia, where the race between Senator Raphael Warnock, the Democratic incumbent, and then Herschel Walker, who's his Republican challenger, now heading to a runoff election in December. So neither candidate was able to clear the 50 percent threshold, which would have allowed them to win outright. Right. So uh, the Senate hangs in the balance. Those three seats that you uh, named, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada, all currently occupied by Democratic senators. Um, right now, whoever wins two out of three of those controls the Senate um, and has the Senate majority uh, between Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. Uh, Nevada, Arizona, pretty slow counters. And actually, uh, we're waiting on some of those House races. Nevada, if you remember, uh, Jill, from the memes from 2020, they take their time in Nevada. Um, <laughs> and so they're taking their time. Uh, they have an interesting process there. But uh, we will probably get a sense of the results over the course of the next 48 hours. Georgia is going to be very interesting. And it's so funny because I feel bad for the uh, Georgia uh, voters who have dealt now with 2020 and uh, two Senate runoffs in 2020. And now they're going to have another Senate runoff uh, in 2022. And so I don't think there's anyone... Uh, in this country who's seen more political ads than Georgia voters over the course of the last uh, 24 months. Uh, the Herschel Walker thing is going to be very interesting uh, to watch in particular because he was one of these nominees who basically was pushed over the edge in the primaries by Donald Trump. And this is one of the themes that you're hearing right now, which is Donald Trump put Dr. Oz in in Pennsylvania and pushed him over the top. Well, he lost, right? Donald Trump put Tudor Dixon in in Michigan. She lost. Donald Trump pushed Don Balducci uh, for Senate in New Hampshire. He lost. Now, he did push J.D. Vance over the edge in Ohio. Ohio is an increasingly red state. But there is this theme that Donald Trump is to blame, and this is coming from Republicans and conservative pundits, for some of their losses this cycle. In the same way that he lost them the House and Senate in 2018, in the same way that he lost them the Georgia runoff in 2020, there's this feeling increasingly among decision makers of the Republican Party that Donald Trump is not a net positive for the party right now. So what happens now over the course of the next month in this runoff in Georgia, Jill? Because I was watching today as not one but two Trump advisors went on TV to tell the former president not to announce for president next week. Right now he is set to announce his 2024 run next uh, week on November 15th. And you had Kayleigh McEnany, the former White House press secretary, go on Fox Wednesday to say, Mr. President, please don't uh, announce until after January 6th. Jason Miller, another advisor, went on Newsmax, another conservative outlet, to be like, dude, please don't run because they feel that his storyline overwhelms the larger storyline and will hurt Republicans. You already see Donald Trump trying to take on Ron DeSantis. He actually, I was going to say he tweeted out, but I think he put this out on Truth Social. He wrote, now that the election in Florida is over and everything went quite well, shouldn't it be said that in 2020, I got 1.1 million more votes in Florida than Ron D got this year? <laughs> 5.7 million to 4.6 million? Just asking. Jill, some people were wondering whether Donald Trump would be more upset about Republicans underperforming or Ron DeSantis really kicking butt in Florida last night. And I think we have our answer there. Ron DeSantis, four years ago when he ran for governor, won by 30,000 votes, by 0.5%. 
Last night, he won the state by 20%. He won a majority in Miami-Dade County, which has been historically Democratic. He won a majority in Palm Beach County, the home of Mar-a-Lago. Incidentally, that county, uh, Trump lost it by 13% in 2020. DeSantis won it. So there are a number, I'm sure former President Trump was telling people around him today, find me some stuff that I've done better than DeSantis. <laughs> <laughs> so clearly he found a number there. But this is this is a thing, right? He's going to announce for, for president next week, or at least that's the plan. So now how does he spin? And he wanted to take credit. I mean, there's this notable interview I posted on my Instagram feed, Jill, where he was asked on News Nation with no irony, with no sarcasm. Uh, you've endorsed 300 people, former President Trump. Like, what do you make of the results? What should we make of the results on Tuesday, depending on how they do? And he goes, if they do well, I want credit. If they don't do well, it's not my fault. Okay, With- so I saw that on your account. I thought it was a parody. I didn't realize he was being serious. It's funny. It's literally something the Steve Carell character says in The Office. So <laughs> like, I posted that clip too. So it, it's really interesting because uh, we're in the situation, the aforementioned President Biden, doesn't take a lesson from this election, right? He says he's intent on running. He turns 80 next week. Separately, uh, you have former President Trump, who does not take a lesson from this, and is set on announcing his run for president, though you have increasingly in the Republican Party being like, it wasn't a great night for us. Do you know who had a great night? Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, who Trump doesn't like. Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who Trump doesn't like. Should we be following the example of the two most prominent Republicans who did the best last night, defying the former president? So there's a very interesting kind of internal debate that's going to be happening here in the Republican Party. And that's actually, I think, one of the themes you can take away from last night. The exit polls were remarkable, Jill. Like three out of four Americans are upset about the direction of this country. And we're about to see the two individuals who ran for president last time run again. One of them running for a third straight election. You know, Trump ran in 16. And and ran in 2020. And now, do you think he could lose the primary to DeSantis? Absolutely. I, I've been. I I put out a uh, question to Republicans who follow me on Instagram of how you feel about this right now. And I typically get a good group of Trump defenders. You know, people who feel he um, he he did what they wanted him to do as president. That he stuck up to things. That he dealt with unfair media coverage, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I can count maybe one or two positive messages I've gotten about Trump from hundreds of Republicans who've written in today who are like, I am done with him. Because they look at it and like, think about it. Trump won in 2016 against a a weak Hillary Clinton without a majority of the popular vote, with 46% of the vote overall. Then in 2018, loses the House and Senate. Then in 2020, loses the presidency. Then goes on to tell people in Georgia not to vote because the whole system's corrupt. So he loses them the Senate majority. Think about everything Biden's been able to accomplish with that the past two years. And now in 2022, in a cycle where Republicans, it shouldn't have been in doubt. As of 9 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday night, media should have been able to call Republicans have taken control of Congress. That is how history has gone. The weight of Donald Trump on that party is something people in that party feel right now. And it is going to be fascinating to see how they unplug from that. So I think there's a legitimate discussion to be had in the primary. And Trump is not somebody who likes to lose. So how does he get out of this if he sees things not going well for himself is, is something we're going to watch in the next year. And Moshe, you have an interview out later today with the Democratic Congressman Richie Torres, right? Yeah. So Richie Torres uh, represents the South Bronx. He just won his um, second term in office. 
Uh, he was one of the Democrats last night who did not have an issue. He won with about 80% of the vote. He represents Yankee Stadium and a whole bunch of the South Bronx. Uh, fascinating, though, I like talking to him because he's pretty self-critical of the Democratic Party. He doesn't just run the partisan line all the time. And so he talked particularly about this kind of uh, bloodshed that happened to Democrats in Congress where they are losing up to four of their um, seats in New York. Uh, the larger themes, lessons from DeSantis, lessons for Democrats. He talks about the public safety element they discussed earlier. So I think people really like that. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast today so you don't miss that edition later today. Jill, I know we have a lot of other news to get to in this podcast, but I want to take a moment right now to thank our sponsor this week, Athletic Greens. I started taking their AG1 supplement a couple months ago, and I'm very excited to share my experience with you. As many of you know, trying to get all your vitamins in can be hard to keep track of and can get pricey. I was actually previously taking various vitamins with breakfast, with lunch, with dinner. I've been taking the AG1 supplement for a couple months now, and I found nothing simpler. It's just one scoop in a glass of water in the morning, and that's it. It's simple and affordable. The AG1 powder contains 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. In addition, AG1 has pre and probiotics support your gut health. All this combines to help you build a strong immune system, especially as we head into cold and flu season. It's really your nutritional insurance policy. And here's the extra good news. Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of vitamin D as well as five free travel packs of AG1 with your first purchase. So visit athleticgreens.com backslash Mo News to learn more about all that AG1 can do for your health. Take advantage of this special offer. You can actually get a discounted monthly subscription or try it just one time to see how you like it. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash Mo News, M-O-N-E-W-S to take advantage of this special deal. All right, time now for the speed read. Some big news when it comes to Ukraine. From the New York Times, Russia's defense minister ordered the retreat of Moscow's forces from the key southern city of Horsan in a potentially devastating blow to President Putin's war effort. A retreat from that city would be a major victory for Ukrainian forces who have long sought to recapture the city and push back Russian troops from the western banks of the Danipro River. The withdrawal from the only regional capital under Moscow's control is a humiliating public route for Putin, this according to the New York Times again, uh, who Western intelligence officials said had rejected earlier requests from commanders that they be allowed to pull back from the city. Yeah, they've been begging him for months to let them uh, retreat. The uh the sorry state of the Russian military right now is really pretty remarkable. Uh, Kherson was actually one of the first cities that Russia took back last uh, March. And uh, they've actually evacuated about 100,000 civilians from that city as they've been trying to clear things out. As the Ukrainians continue uh, to gradually take back their country. Uh, and so far, if you talk to British and, and other U.S. military officials, they believe that the Russians are only in a place now to play defense and not offense, which means over time, if you're uh, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, you feel pretty optimistic about how things are going. I should note, Jill, and I uh, mentioned on the podcast yesterday that Zelensky is under pressure right now from the West to show Putin that he is ready to talk. Uh, and laid out yesterday uh, his conditions for negotiations, which I imagine Putin is not going to uh, really take seriously right now because Putin's negotiating from a position of weakness. When you're retreating, you're in a position of weakness, which means you're not going to get a good deal at the end of the negotiations. It's just so sad because when you talk about Ukraine taking back their country, what are they taking back? It's just demolished. There is so much reconstruction that needs to be done, so many lives lost. Um 
And for what? You've got to wonder. I just feel like you and I, and this is a much bigger discussion. This war has been going on, what, nine, ten months right now? Nine months, yeah. And I remember interviews that you had done early on with with experts, and and they thought it was going to be over in four days, five days, that Russia was going to sweep through, um, basically take Kyiv within a week. Obviously, this is still going on, and you just have to wonder – how it does end and and at what cost it's it's just it's really just so sad and, and the big issue you have now globally is the world's done its pretty much best to pressure putin they're gone as far as they're willing to go uh and it hasn't affected him and that's what you have when, the, when you have an authoritarian regime with a leader like that there's no one who can speak truth to putin right now and he's really in control including the potential use of a dirty bomb or nuclear weapons which you know he threatens all the time and you know, Putin has promised his people victory and promised that there is a reason he's making the Russian people suffer the way they are. And so he's in a a spot where it's impossible for him to retreat in some way. And by the way, I mentioned Zelensky is ready for peace talks. He laid out his conditions. One of those things, Jill, is for Russia to pay for all the damage they've done to his country, which at this point, you know, estimates are in the hundreds of billions of dollars. All right, Jill, our next story comes to us from the Wall Street Journal. The Facebook parent company Meta announced layoffs on Wednesday to 11,000 staff, nearly 13% of all employees. It's the first broad headcount reductions to occur in the company's history, which it was founded back in 2004. So this is nearly 18 years now. This is all part of their first restructuring to cope with a slumping digital ad market, falling stock price. In a message to the staff on Wednesday morning, Mark Zuckerberg, the founder, who still runs the company after all these years, said the company would cut staff across all of its businesses with its recruiting and business teams disproportionately affected. I actually heard, I got a couple DMs. Uh, There's a number of people at Meta who follow uh, my Instagram account, um, Jill, and I was uh, talking to a recruiter with their Metaverse team who was actually surprised to be losing their job because they were the part that the company was investing in. And so they were recruited with Metaverse and they're like, yeah, we're now sort of confused as the direction of this company, given that parts of this company that we didn't think would be affected are affected. Well, you know what? I was reading the letter. He uh, he wrote a letter to employees where he took responsibility for the cuts. He apologized to employees. And in it, he did say that the that certain parts of the business, like the recruiting and business teams would be disproportionately affected. And in part, it's because there's a hiring freeze. So what are they going to be doing, right? If you're a recruiter and for a company that is a hiring freeze, there's not that much to do. Um, that that hiring freeze is going to be in place until 2023. Meta's stock had plunged 71% this year through Tuesday. Company, of course, taking these steps to bring down costs following several quarters of disappointing earnings, a slide in revenue It reflects this sharp slowdown in the digital advertising market and what's viewed at Zuckerberg's very pricey, questionable investment in the metaverse. Yeah, I mean, that's he renamed the company Meta. You know, he bought Oculus, the virtual reality company. And so it'll be very interesting to see kind of what what they do here. Uh, It was interesting to read that note, by the way, um, Jill, I posted on on Instagram for everyone to read. Um, Speaking of meta, I posted on Instagram. Uh, He did admit that he thought the surge in e-commerce web traffic that began during COVID would be part of a permanent acceleration, and that has not been the case. From Axios, your next car is likely to know if you've been drinking too much and could block you from driving, even if you think you're sober enough to do so. 
Drunk driving crashes kill about 32 people per day in the United States. Sophisticated alcohol detection technologies that are now in development could save most of those lives, according to experts. Automakers and federal safety regulators are now researching two high-tech alcohol detection systems. One would automatically detect alcohol on a driver's breath. The other would measure it through the driver's skin. Something's got to be done, Jill, because um, it's really unfortunate if you've seen headlines in recent years that the number of pedestrian fatalities and traffic fatalities have begun to increase again over the course of the past decade plus. It plummeted after the uh, mandatory seatbelt in the 80s. Actually, if you go back to the 80s, by the way, folks, there was a time where it was a real fight in this country. A lot of people were like anti-seatbelts in cars. Which is crazy, right? It's just, it's so interesting how the the culture and things can change. Right. Even smoking, like you and I remember a time where like you couldn't go out in night 20 years ago without coming home smelling of smoke, even if you didn't smoke. And that was a huge fight. Bars saying like, you know, if you ban cigarettes, people won't go out anymore. Well, guess what? That, you know, stopped. But needless to say, I'm on a tangent here, but uh, so seatbelts became mandatory. Uh, Airbags became mandatory. All of these new safety measures, and a lot of them have been negated by smartphones. So that's something that I think would be very interesting to figure out is these companies have to figure out how to prevent people from looking at their phone or distracted driving is an issue. But if you look at U.S. numbers versus the rest of the Western world, even take into account that we're more of a driving culture than Western Europe and other countries, you look at the death rate, we have a much higher rate. And part of it has to do with mandatory speed cameras, et cetera, in these other countries. There's actually a number of U.S. states that have bans against speed cameras um, for privacy. And what for is wrong with us? <laughs> like, just like thousands of just lives like, leave us saved. alone. I know. I feel like we are just, we hang on to our freedom, yeah. uh, you know, regardless of the cost. Yeah. yeah. Freedom isn't free for many pedestrians <laughs> in America, unfortunately. So uh, let's, let's hope that this, uh, you know, alcohol tech is one thing and we find a way because it is crazy to me that we're in 2022 and the number of people dying in car crashes is going up again. And, and by the way, and we're the only country where that's happened. All right, Jill, our final story comes to us from Allure magazine. <laughs> I'm laughing. <laughs> I'm laughing because when I wrote that in, I was excited for you to read it because it is so not our typical place right, where we like get Axios, headlines from. Axios, New York from. Times, Reuters, Allure magazine <laughs> is our latest headline today. But it's actually a very interesting story, and I'm looking forward to your thoughts on this. Jennifer Aniston was interviewed for Allure magazine. The headline reads, at 53, she opens up about her path to leaving regrets and some deeply personal pain behind. Notably, uh, Jill, she talks about trying unsuccessfully to start a family in her late 30s and 40s. She says, quote, all the years and years and years of speculation, it was really hard. I was going through IVF, drinking Chinese teas, you name it. I was throwing everything at it. I would have given anything if someone had said to me, freeze your eggs, do yourself a favor. You just don't think it. So here I am today. The ship has sailed. This story, I guess, beyond midterm elections has really been lighting up social media. Yeah, this story is resonating with a lot of women. You remember there was always this speculation on whether she was pregnant. The paparazzi would be out. They'd be getting pictures of her trying to speculate if there was a baby bump. Uh, So much so that she even wrote an op-ed about it in the Huffington Post back in 2016, where she slammed the media for its obsession with her being pregnant and her its treatment of women in general. She told Allure magazine, I've just got to write this because it's so maddening and I'm not superhuman to the point where I can't let it penetrate and hurt. I think a lot of women can relate to this, even though I have to say women, including myself, 
would buy all of those tabloids and talk about whether or not she was pregnant. And you know this, Mosh, because you and I are friends. I froze my eggs a few years ago. I was in my 30s, still single, and using it as an insurance policy. Luckily, I did not need to actually use those eggs, but it did take a lot of the pressure off which is perhaps why I didn't need them. Um, but it, cause it does become this vicious cycle where the more stressed you are about getting pregnant, the harder it becomes. But I will say it costs a fortune and it, most companies do not cover it. Most insurance policies do not cover it. Um, either way though, it, nice to hear Aniston talk so openly about infertility and her struggles with it because it, it, for whatever reason, it is still somewhat taboo. She also talked about how much she hates social media and how she's so happy to grow up during a time when it did not exist. Also quite relatable, I must say. <laughs> I, I can imagine. I mean, it's it's really, um, you know, you're used to celebrities kind of spinning certain narratives and to read this very, very honest interview uh, about something that must be very difficult and challenging for her to talk about. Um, you know, given her struggles, I, you know, I, I hope um, is encouraging and and helpful to people out there. Fertility struggles are so difficult, Mosh, and I and I think for so many women, there's not enough celebrities that that talk about it, or there's not. It's just for whatever reason, people aren't openly discussing it as much as we discuss almost everything else. So just the fact that she's out there starting this conversation, I think, is a step in the right direction. Yeah, and I I know there's another prominent uh, celebrity, Amy Schumer, has been talking about um, all the challenges she had with childbirth. Um, and what she dealt with afterwards, uh, the whole process, etc. So I think um, more and more, at least in the last decade, I would say, or maybe even less than that, less than five years, uh, you have seen more prominent um, celebs, politicians, uh, etc. talking about uh, their struggles in this way. All right, I want to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast. Please make sure to follow or subscribe to the show so you don't miss a single episode. A reminder that we'll have another episode out just later today. It'll be uh, my interview with Congressman Richie Torres, a Democrat, talking about uh, lessons learned from these midterm elections and a look ahead to the next two years in Congress. Uh, he also, by the way, has some advice to the first Gen Z congressman. Uh, Jill, we forgot to mention that. The first gen member of Gen Z will be entering Congress. He's a congressman from just outside Orlando. He's 25 years old, so we can all feel old now. Uh, so he'll talk about what it's like to be a youngin in a place where there's a bunch of 80-year-olds walking around. Jill, there's just so many things I still could talk about these midterms. Chuck Grassley, Sander from Iowa, is 89 years old. He just got reelected for six more years. You know, it makes me feel hopeful. Like, remember I told you the other day, Bosch, that somebody insulted me by calling me a, a white middle-aged woman or something? Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not – like, what is middle age anymore? If, if people are literally walking the Senate you know, in the, their 90s, I guess we've got a lot of years ahead of us. You, you got another half century ahead of you, Jill. <laughs> you could be elected to Senate too in your 80s and maybe uh, given what we're about to witness in the 2024 presidential, also president in your 80s. Okay, before we go, a reminder to review us in the App Store. If you could take a moment to do that, it helps us continue to grow this podcast. If you also would like to receive a bit of Mo News into your email inbox, you can sign up for our newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com and a reminder to follow me over on the uh, gram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H <laughs> for the latest and greatest. You're so hip, Moshe. <laughs> Is that what they're calling it, the gram? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Maybe uh, like 10 years ago. But anyway. Yeah, um. I'll, I'll ask the new Gen Z here in Congress. <laughs> All right, guys. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Bye.